turn to Numbers chapter 4. Numbers chapter 4 this morning. We're going through the book of Numbers, and some might say, well, the, what can we learn from an Old Testament uh, book entitled Numbers? Uh, are we learning math? Uh, are we learning uh, algebra? Trigonometry, there you go. That's a good one. Uh, well, God is interested in some numbers here. God is interested in uh, his people living and serving him according to his instructions. And so in the book of Numbers, I believe there are some messages there for us as well. In our last uh, message on Numbers, last Sunday evening, we focused upon the tribe of Israel known as the Levites. Uh, From this tribe came priests, and workers in the tabernacle, and also the construction and transportation teams. Uh, The Levites taught us very important lessons I think can be useful for today. We spoke about the usefulness that's based upon availability, purity, responsibility, dependability, uh, not size or prestige. Uh, We talked about the fact that God owns us. Uh, We talked about the truth of the priesthood of the believer. We are priests uh, before God. We don't need another person, another man uh, to go between us and God. We are believer priests. And one particular lesson that we did not talk about, but is certainly back there in chapter 3 as well, is that not everyone has the same burdens to bear or the same responsibilities. And that uh, truth is seen among the Levite families. The Gershonites uh, were at the west end of the camp. They transported the coverings and the hangings and the framework of the uh, tabernacle. And uh, there were wagons that were provided for transport and so forth. And then there was the Kohathites. Uh, They were in the south end of the camp, and they were in charge of the furniture in the sanctuary. And Aaron's sons took down the veil and covered the Ark of the Covenant. They covered it with skins and uh, a cloth of blue. The Kohathites uh, put wood in the rings of the Ark. Uh, They would carry the furniture upon their shoulders. No wagons there for providing transport of the Ark. That was not according to God's instruction. But the Kohathites were burden bearers. Uh, Their burden was very precious. And so we find here that uh, different people of God's people here, the Israelites, had different responsibilities. And so it is today. Christians and believers and members in a church have different responsibilities. Uh, We have different burdens. If we talk about burdens, we talk about trials and difficulties that many times come our way. And what might be a burden in your life today is not the burden in, for someone sitting next to you or someone else in this, uh, uh, the congregation this morning. We have different burdens to bear. And I don't know what your particular burden is this morning, uh, but it might well be a precious burden too. Uh, Job 23 and verse 10 says, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 
2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The Maronites Maronites, uh, carried the heavy boards of the tabernacles. Uh, they, They carried the bars and the pillars and the silver sockets. Everyone had their responsibilities and they had different burdens to bear. And again, the same truth holds for us today. There are some burdens we can share with others. Galatians 6, 2 says, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There are some burdens that we can only bear alone. Galatians 6, 5, for every man shall bear his own burden. Every person in uh, a church bears different burdens and responsibilities. We have different abilities as well. Not everyone can teach the Sunday school. Not everyone plays the piano or the organ. Not everyone preaches a sermon. Not everyone takes the offering or counts the offering. But there are different responsibilities. And uh, we uh, trust that we uh, it doesn't make us any more or less important in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. So as we come to chapter 4 of the book of Numbers, we find another tremendous truth here. As we read this chapter, we find that the census is taken, but not everyone is put into service. Uh, we're not told exactly why they consider, were considered unfit for service, although it might have been something had something to do with their age. Of the Kohathites, the 8,600 were counted. Only 5,850 were unfit for service. Uh, the Gershonites, uh, 7,500 were counted. 4,870 were unfit for service. Of the Merorites, uh, 6,200 were counted, and 3,000 were unable to serve. Now, these facts would pose a question for our consideration. How many Christians are unfit for the service of the Lord? Paul feared being unfit for the service of Christ. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I want you to notice with me a couple of things this morning. And there are some reasons, first of all, that may not someone may not be fit for the service of the Lord. So we're looking at uh, uh, unfit for service. Look at chapter 4, just a few verses here uh, to begin. Chapter 4, verse 4. This shall be the service of the sons of Koath in the tabernacle of the congregation, congregation about the most holy things. And then go all the way down to verse 19. It says, but thus do unto them that they may live and not die when they approach unto the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint them everyone to his service and to his burden. But they shall not go in 
to see when the holy things are covered, lest they die. Now, we also notice, as you go through Numbers chapter 4, I encourage you to read these passages. Some are difficult to read uh, because of the names and, and all the instructions that are given here sometimes. We might think, well, what's, what's the use of this? But as I've gone through chapter 4, I find that there is the word service used 19 times. Uh, I think that's significant. There's also the word minister, which is a very similar word, uh, uh, used a number of t- times in the word ministry. There's also the name burden, but uh, uh, significantly here is the word service used 19 times. But some were unfit for service according to this chapter. So notice, first of all, some were not qualified. They were not qualified. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible says in order to serve God, you must be born again. All right. Uh, If you're going to do the work for the Lord, then you must know the Lord of the work. And uh, this is uh, one of the distinctives of an independent Baptist. We believe in saved church membership. And by this, we mean that membership in a New Testament local church consists of only those who have openly confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior and demonstrated a willingness to obey the teachings of the Bible and agree with the doctrine and standards of this local church. Now, we don't baptize babies. Uh, Although born a sinner, a little infant has no ability to know the difference between right and wrong and cannot know what is taking place when being baptized by some priest or some clergyman. So what happens when you have infant baptism and you allow those to become members of the church? We talked a little bit about this last uh, Sunday uh, when we talked about the, uh, the Reformation. Well, you have a generation of unbelievers that grow up in a church thinking that they're saved by baptism. You have a church filled with unbelievers making decisions that, uh, that affect the direction of the church, and it's no wonder so many churches have gotten away from the Word of God today. Now, I realize a person can grow up in a Bible-believing church and know all the terminology and act like a Christian and never personally place their trust in Jesus Christ. Is it possible that an unsaved person can become a member of a New Testament church even like ours? Yes, it's possible. But we trust that God does not allow that to happen. And if it has happened, we pray that the work of the Holy Spirit and the faithful preaching of God's word, that person will be saved and get it right. Uh, We're going to talk about making it right tonight or this afternoon in our uh, study as we continue on. But perhaps there's someone here this morning in that condition. Remember, your baptism does not save you. Your church membership does not save you. Your good work in the church or the community does not save you. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so if you're going to be truly qualified for service, you must be saved. Christians are unfit for service if they are not saved Secondly, Christians are unfit for service if they were not abiding in Christ. In John chapter 15 is the great abiding chapter. And it says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in the vine or in me. 
Matthew 15 and verse 8, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, it's difficult to serve the Lord when your heart is far from Him. D.L. Moody said, God uses a man that is close to Him. Not only are they not abiding in Christ, but they are deficient in spiritual maturity. The believers at Corinth had a real problem with spiritual maturity. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? And so a carnal Christian is one who hasn't grown up spiritually. It's evident that he lacks spiritual discernment, not because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, but because he's not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is a consequence of his relationship to the Word of God. It's so important to understand. A carnal Christian is acting like a babe in Christ. He has the ability, but no desire. Now, how can we identify a carnal Christian? Well, if a Christian is, uh, it's a Christian who is using the weak arm of the flesh. He's using carnal methods to obtain spiritual goals. An obvious example of this kind of Christian is one who says, in order to get people in the church, we have to entertain them. We have to have some lively contemporary Christian singing group or dramatic production of some kind. Uh, just preaching isn't good enough. So we must draw them in with entertainment. I'm afraid there's a lot of churches today that are like the church at Corinth. They're not helping people to grow and they're mature in their Christian lives because they're not getting a steady diet of Bible teaching and Bible preaching. Now, not only are some not saved, some not abiding in Christ, some lack spiritual maturity, but also they lack preparation to serve. God commands us to be prepared and to do our best to serve him. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that lieth within you, with meekness and fear. In... Uh, we also find here that uh, they were unfit for, or you, a, a person can be unfit for service for the Lord because they have a lack of interest in serving. Second Timothy 4.10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed from Thessalonica, Creason to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Revelation 2.4 says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast loved, left thy first love. And this is what the Lord had to say about that church in Ephesus. Listen, if you do something because no one else will do it, it's a job. If you're doing something to serve the Lord, then it's a ministry. If you do just, uh, if you do just enough to get by, it's a job. If you do the task to the best of your ability, then it's a ministry. If you quit a task because someone criticized you, it was a job. If you continue to serve, though facing opposition, it is ministry. If you give up because no one praised you, it was a job. If you do the work because it needs to be done, it's a ministry. 
It's hard to get excited about a job, but it's almost impossible not to get excited about a ministry. You know, average people are, uh, average churches are filled with many people doing many jobs. Great churches are filled with many people that are involved in ministry. So if your concern is just success, it's a job. If your concern is faithfulness to God, then it's ministry. People may say, well done when you do your job. But the Lord will say, well done when you complete your ministry. So not only were, are some not saved, not only are some not abiding in Christ, some lack spiritual maturity, some lack preparation, some lack interest, but some are not present to serve. I've said it before, and no doubt you'll hear me say it again, but it's absolutely necessary for a growing Christian to be faithful to the services of a local New Testament church. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Someone has said, don't be so busy in the kingdom that you don't have time for the king. Many folks today are too busy. Uh, that the Lord is crowded out of their schedules. Many opportunities of service are lost because Christians are not faithful in the church. And then there are spiritual handicaps that hinder from serving. Hebrews 12 and verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. 2 Timothy 2.4, No man uh, that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, but that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. I wonder, are there weights or entanglements in your life that are keeping you from serving Christ? God wants us to make up our minds and serve him. And someone again has given us a, a titles for the three types of Christians who respond to the call of service. Some are rowboat uh, Christians. I didn't say robo or robot. I said rowboat Christians. They have to be pushed wherever they go. Some are sailboat Christians. They always go with the wind. But then there are steamboat Christians. They make up their minds where they ought to go and they go there regardless of the wind or the weather. So what is it that holding you back this morning from faithfully serving the Lord? Perhaps it's sinfulness. Maybe it's an unholy life. That brings us to the second area we want to look at this morning, and that has to do with spiritual cleanliness. We ought not just talk about holy life, but we ought to be living a holy life. And that's what makes us effective servants for the Lord. Notice, secondly, keep the camp clean. When you come to Numbers chapter 5, you'll find that God stresses the importance of a Clean camp to his people. Uh, if you don't uh, keep things clean in your life, uh, you know, the Bible does say cleanliness is next to godliness, right? No, it doesn't say that. But the principle is there. Uh, you can't give me a chapter or verse for that particular idea. But, you know, I think Christians ought to be Christians of order. And I, that doesn't mean you have to be OCD. You don't have to have, you know, everything just just right. But God is not a God of confusion. And he was a God of order, as you see and you study uh, the, the book of Numbers, and you study what God instructed these people to do. 
You'll find that God stresses the importance of a clean camp to his people. It was to be kept clean, not for the health and only for health and hygiene purposes, but also to teach the meaning of separation and holiness. God dwelt in the midst of this people. In Exodus 29 and verse 45, it says, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. Leviticus 26 and verse 12 says, I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people. Now, with the promise of fellowship came responsibility. Uh, They were to deal with that which defiles. There were three kinds of defilement. There were the lepers, those with infections and skin diseases. Uh, Those were those who had issues. Uh, That's the fluids being discharged from the body. We won't talk about that in detail. Uh, There were defilement from a dead body. And if a person uh, prepared a body for burial, he was certified as unclean for a week. And that's why the reasons, uh, one of the reasons that the tombs were, were whited sepulchers in the New Testament. Uh, The solution to those who were defiled was to quarantine them or put them out of the camp. And this medical practice was discovered and understood 3,400 years later by the medical society as an effective uh, method for dealing with contagious diseases. But here's the Bible, the only ancient book to insist on this practice. Why? Because the Bible is the word of God. And so what does it mean for us? Well, the principles found here in dealing with leprosy also apply to the Christian life. There are two of them in particular. One is that God of God's presence. The camp was to be clean because of the presence of God in the camp. God's presence is not uh, to be taken for granted. It was very special. And the Bible teaches us that when we get saved, we receive the indwelling presence. Of, the, of God the Holy Spirit. And God is always with us. When he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, that's exactly what he meant. As a Christian, you can't go anywhere and do anything without God's presence. And so that is why we're to keep the camp clean. The Bible gives us a number of insights on the presence of God. First of all, God's presence gives a calm, according to Exodus thirty-three fourteen. And he said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. Secondly, God's presence gives courage. Deuteronomy 20 and verse 1 says, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. The presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit gives us boldness and confidence to the believer. Uh, the three Hebrews uh, in Daniel who were threatened with the fiery furnace would not bend or bow or budge. They were determined to obey God. God's presence gives courage. Third, thirdly, God's presence gives comfort and care. Isaiah 43 and verse 2, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers... They shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And God comforted Daniel in the lion's den. Again, the three Hebrews in the uh, children in the uh, furnace. And God certainly gives comfort and care in times when we lose loved ones. God's presence gives comfort and care. Fourthly, God's presence is in a crowd of Christians. 
Matthew 18 and verse 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The presence of the Holy Spirit is not based upon our emotions. Uh, Sometimes people say things like, Oh, the Spirit of the Lord was in that service. Well, you should have been there. Uh, that's what one lady told me who had, they had a contemporary Christian rock concert in their church. The Spirit of the Lord was there. Well, uh, it might have been a spirit, but I don't think it was the Spirit of the Lord. God's presence isn't based on emotions, whether it be crying or everybody clapping their hands or tapping their toes to the music. You see, any time a true born-again Christian is gathered together uh, with other Christians, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is indwelling those Christians. Now, whether those Christians are allowing the Spirit of the Lord to work in their hearts, that's another matter. When there's sin in a Christian's life, the Spirit convicts them of sin, and they respond to that conviction, they confess their sins, and the Spirit of God is working and moving in people. It may come with emotion. It may not come with great emotion. But don't equate crying in the service with the Holy Spirit. This is not always the case. But if you're being stubborn in your sin and resisting the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God is being grieved. And the Bible tells us not to grieve the Spirit of God. We need to keep our hearts clean. And then there's God's presence is continual. Matthew 28, 20 says, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and Lo, I am with you all way, even to the end of the world. Amen. So in good times and bad times, in up times and down times, in sickness and in health, rich or poor, alive or dead, the Lord is with you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation, your manner of life, be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Well, then God's presence is characterized by celebration. First Chronicles sixteen twenty seven: Glory and honor are hid in his presence. Strength and gladness are in his, his place. The Lord is to be glorified in our lives and in our church. It is, he is not glorified when we act like the heathen. Can people tell that we're a Christian? God's presence is characterized by celebration. Number seven, God's presence, there is cheer, joy. Psalm 16, verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In the presence, thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures evermore. You know, in sorrowful times, God can give comfort. When you're under stressful circumstances, God can give comfort. His presence, in his presence there is cheer. Also, God's presence is comprehensive. The Lord is everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? And then God's presence cohabits the Christian. The presence of God indwells the believer in the person of the Holy Spirit. We uh, touched on this already, but the Bible says in Romans 8, 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall the God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. You see, here we're getting down to the real truth of the matter, aren't we? 
Why should we keep ourselves clean? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, we are to keep ourselves clean because our bodies, our lives are the indwelling place of the Spirit of God. He lives within us. He goes where you go. He sees what you see. He's there no matter what you do. And if you want God's presence in your life, then put your faith in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. You don't have to go through life alone. Uh, You don't have to be in turmoil or you have to be scared or insecure or depressed or dependent upon drugs or alcohol to make you feel better. You don't have to worry yourself to death. Jesus is the antidote for fear. If you say no to Christ, then you have a reason to be worried. You have a reason to be scared, depressed, and insecure. But keep your camp clean. Get it clean and keep it clean. There's another principle here in this uh, chapter concerning uh, the leprosy. Even in the book of Numbers, uh, it's God's desire. Leprosy is a picture of sin. It's corruptive. It's contagious, just like sin is. And as a leper was removed from the camp, we're to remove sin from our personal lives by confessing it to the Lord and asking for his cleansing and forgiveness. We're to repent and turn from our sin. God desires that we be spiritually clean and holy. We're called to be holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. There it is. God can't make it any more plain than that. We are commanded to be holy. Romans 6.13 Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Thirdly, we are to be conformed to the Lord. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, and be ye transformed, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I know we covered that in Sunday school, but some of you weren't here in Sunday school, so we'll cover it again. And for those that were in Sunday school, we'll cover it again. Because it's a good verse. Because it's God's word. We are not to live uh, in the mold of the heathen world. Our lifestyles are not to be sensual. They're not to be wild. They're not to be ungodly. We're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed. We're to be consistent in holiness. 1 Peter 1.15 But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. We're to pattern ourselves after the Lord. He's holy, and so we're to be holy. He's not up and down and up and down. No, he's consistent. You say, well, I can't be that consistent. I'm not perfect. No, you're not perfect, but that is what you ought to be striving for. You ought to be obedient to God's word. When he says, be ye holy because I am holy, then that's what we need to be. That's a, that's a command. Holiness or godliness is conducive or profitable. 1 Timothy 4, 
7 and 8, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness profiteth unto all things, having promise of this life that now is and of that which is to come. Living a holy and godly life is profitable. And then holiness considers the coming of Christ. First, Tim, or First John two twenty eight says, And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. What would Jesus find us doing when he comes? Now he could come at any time. Oh, well, I'll be working, I'll be doing this or doing that. But we'll be honoring the Lord with a holy life. So how do we keep the camp clean? How do we keep the camp clean? What is the key for making us fit for service and keeping our lives clean before the Lord? What does God use to help us to be holy and and cleanse our lives. Actually, there's three things. Now, here we're starting sermon number two, really, this morning. I'm not going to expand on these points like I did all the others, but, you know, this is a sermon in itself. Of course, we keep ourselves clean because uh, through the Word of God. Most of you are holding the key right in your hands this morning, right there. That's the key. John 15, 3 says, Now ye are clean, through the word which I have spoken unto you. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Ephesians 5, 26, That he may might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And so he uses the word of God. Secondly, he uses the grace of God. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And then thirdly, he, suffer, he uses suffering and chastening. And we don't like this part. But God finds it necessary sometimes to allow us to go through some suffering or to discipline us or chasten us. In Hebrews twelve ten, he says, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasures, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. God was very concerned that those that served him in the Old Testament here, in the Old Testament economy, be qualified, be fit for service. And while we're not under this system and we don't go through all these things that is talked about here and we don't have the, uh, the issues of leprosy and so forth today, there are still some principles for us to follow and to engage ourselves in spiritually so that we're fit for service for God. And that means we need to keep the camp clean. We need to keep our lives clean before the Lord. Are you fit for his service this morning? If you're not saved, you don't qualify. But if you are saved and there's sin in your life, you need to confess that sin before God and get it right. And desire to serve him. God is interested in our being uh, servants. Again, 
The servant's job, the responsibilities are not all the same. Your burdens are not all the same this morning. But God is interested in your burdens. God is interested in your service for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for...